I'm Michelle Sims, and this is the Beauty in the Mess, a community where people who crave a shift in mindset, personal growth, and connection to like-minded people come together to start rewriting their stories. Through engaging, honest, and insightful conversations, the show will help you embrace the mess to recognize the meanings and the lessons it holds and discover its hidden treasures to help you start making a mindset shift. Let's listen, learn, and reclaim who we were meant to be. Hi, friend. Welcome to The Beauty and the Mess. For this episode, I'm excited to welcome Bobby Melatesta to The Beauty and the Mess. Bobby is on a mission to change the way people do gambling addiction recovery socially. Bobby talks about overcoming adversity, alcoholism, loss, and gambling addiction. Her vision is to create a chain of recovery playgrounds that will provide entertainment, amusement park style, where there is no gambling, drinking, drugs, or children allowed. She wants to encourage adults to play again and help remove the stigma around addiction. She also strives to bring awareness to how few inpatient gambling addiction recovery centers there are around the United States, how needed they are, and how they should be free to gambling addicts. Hi, I'm Michelle Sims, your host. I'm just a regular person who, along with my family, have had our share of messes that we too have had to overcome. Along the way, I got curious as to how others get through their messes and even triumph over them. Maybe there's a better way, a faster way. Maybe we can accelerate our journeys by learning from someone else. That started my pursuit. I think we can all learn from each other through the sharing of our experiences, lessons, and knowledge. So join me for episode 38 of The Beauty in the Mess called Exploring Gambling Addiction and Recovery with Bobby Malatesta. Bobby was an active gambling addict for over 30 years and has been in recovery for over seven years now. She is a podcaster and best-selling author. Her podcasts are 321 No Kidding Gambling Addiction Podcast and the Recovering Entrepreneur Podcast. Her book that she co-authored is called Belonging, Secrets to Soothe the Soul, and she most recently earned her certificate in nonprofit management social entrepreneur. Her formal education earned her a degree in business and technology management. Bobby currently resides in Naugatuck, Connecticut, where she is not working remotely from around the world. So without further ado, let's dive right into today's conversation. Well, hi, Bobby. Welcome to the Beauty and the Mess. I'm so happy to have you with us today. Thank you for having me here, Michelle. I'm excited to chat with you. Oh, absolutely. Now, I know you are out to raise an awareness around gambling addiction and you've overcome gambling addiction yourself and other adversity. But I was wondering, before we get into all that, could you give us your background story? What led you to where you're at today in life? Oh, sure. I'm almost 49 and I've always been kind of a nomad and an escaper. And I didn't realize that's exactly what I was doing until I figured a lot of things out the last, I don't know, six or seven years, but grew up around a lot of addiction, a lot of drug abuse, death, oh, wow. all kinds of things like that. Got a career in grocery very early and in floral. And that's how I spent quite a bit of my adult working life, aside from a stint as a truck driver when I was younger, where I ran around the country. And how was that? As a single young lady, how was I'm so glad I did it when I did. I was in truck driving school on my 22nd birthday, and I did it for about five years, mostly alone. The last year I was married, but so many women would say to me, I wish I did that, but I got married, but I had a kid, you know, like that kind of story. But I was fearless back then. 
I don't think I could go back out there now. I, I would be too scared. It was probably just as dangerous, but I would be too scared now. I think I'm getting wiser in my old age. <laughs> I remember wanting to be a truck driver, you know, when I was younger, because I thought it was so cool that they get to travel and see all these places, but I wasn't fearless. So I never made it. It's definitely one of those I wish I knew about like personal development and so many things back then I would have been listening and consuming data to to make myself a little bit better or to, I don't know, to improve, essentially. But I didn't know about all that stuff. We'd only listen to murder mysteries and things. So you're a truck driver. And what happens after that? So I go back to grocery because when I was driving truck, I met my ex-husband when I was driving and we were teaming, but he kept waking up in casino parking lots because when I was supposed to be driving, I would go in the casino and gamble instead. Oh, wow. So he eventually kind of threw me out of the truck. He didn't dump me. He just threw me out of the truck and said, I don't think this is working. So I went back to grocery for quite a while. And he still ended up marrying me and tolerating me while I gambled away our household money. And I lied and manipulated and did all the things. And we didn't get divorced until 2013. It wasn't an ugly divorce. I was still gambling and just knew he deserved better than what I was doing. Oh, wow. So what led you to gambling? I mean, did you see a family member or was it just the get rich quick I didn't want to become an alcoholic, Michelle. Okay. That's what I truly believe now. There was a lot of drinkers. When I was 14, my uncle killed himself with heroin. Oh, wow. And he did that because he had AIDS. And the girlfriend that he had broke up with him. And back then it was like, you know, I remember us being in a movie theater and he took he had an AIDS awareness pin on and he was painting at that building and he took it down. And I didn't understand back then because I was just, you know, a teenager. I was like, well, so what? It was normal in our household. But then he thought he would never love again. So he OD'd, but he had had a big history. The guy who moved in after him, who I had the biggest crush on, he OD'd on Thanksgiving morning. Oh, wow. My biological father was a pill popper and a drunk. I was in Alateen very early. And I remember, like, I learned all the things and tried all the things at 15, the drinking, the drugs, all of it. By 17, I had a period of, I'm going to be sober. My 21st birthday, I remember questioning, can I drink? Because I don't want to end up like that. But in the meanwhile, I'm buying scratch-offs and lotto tickets at 15. I grew up working in groceries, so I would go to the customer service desk on payday. They would give me a book of... 250 or $500 worth of scratch-offs, I would scratch them and either they paid me or I paid them out of my paycheck. Oh, wow. And it just kept escalating. I was sneaking into the casinos. By the time I was like 19, I knew how to get into the 21 and older ones because I had another painter uncle who told me how to get in through the bathroom. So I was, I didn't realize I was using it to deal with all the things, but I was. Instead of turning to the alcohol I was afraid of needles, so I wouldn't do heroin. I, I didn't like stuff up my nose, so I wouldn't do coke. But I was running away from that thinking I was doing great. And I also had the sense of, it's my money. I could do what I want. It felt like I was in control of something when I was not in control of so many things around me. Oh, wow. So what kind of help was available for a gambling addict? We hear a lot about alcoholism, but you don't hear a lot about gambling addictions. 
Luckily, it's getting better. In my early 20s, I was actually in a study in Connecticut about gambling addiction. Oh, And I didn't realize it then, but they asked the 20 questions that they ask in the 12-step program. It's kind of like you pass the test. You're definitely, you know, you're a compulsive gambler if you've done X, Y, and Z. I think AA only has three questions to pass. So they were starting to research it back then. And I tried going to GA. And during the study, I, I didn't gamble for the six months. But that was my ego. Like I could show them instead of, you know, really operating under the urges and stuff. So as time went on, Gamblers Anonymous has been one of the primary ways to help people. And even now, there's only six inpatient treatment centers in the whole country oh. that have the specialty and the trained staff for gambling addiction. There's some outpatient, it's growing, but inpatient, it's not like a drug and alcohol rehab on every corner yet, but there's a lot of movement around the country, around the world. And that's part of why I wanted to have a voice in it when I when I stopped gambling for good this time, almost seven years ago. I was like, wait a minute. I lived in a state that I could go to rehab for free. So Kansas, because they had a deal with the casinos, they paid for me to go to rehab. I had a friend that I met in there that lived in Wisconsin. And in Wisconsin, there's gambling on every corner, but it's not it's not like organized. It's not big like the Indian casinos or Native American casinos here or in Kansas, or there wasn't the relationships. It wasn't state run. So he had a pay to go to treatment. And I'm like scratching my head when it's time for a gambler to get treatment, they don't have money to pay for treatment. Exactly. So that was one of the seeds that was planted along the way. Wow. So I know it's probably broader than the show is long, but how do you actually overcome that kind of addiction? And how do you maintain your recovery? Well, I quit twice Okay. to speak of. So I had had a mission to be director of floral by the time I was 40. And I got it when I was 39 and I just had to move to Kansas city to get it. So my first month there as director of floral, I'm in a two bedroom, beautiful apartment, great. One of the wealthiest cities in the country. And I go and I gamble away every dollar I have the first month I'm there. I don't even have rent money to pay for my rent. Wow. And I'm all by myself because now I made sure my divorce was final. I moved halfway across the country by myself. It was a Saturday night and I woke up that Sunday morning. I think what saved my life, to be honest, is a sense of responsibility. Like I always had duty. I always worked, you know, like I didn't call out to gamble. Although when I got high enough that I could kind of make my hours and do what I wanted, I did go gamble. But I got up that Sunday morning. I got a second job. I looked for a GA meeting. And that Monday, I was in that meeting and out pounding the pavement trying to make up more income for even though I had this really amazing job. And I did about two years, but it was out of fear. It was like fear of failing, fear of you know losing everything that I had worked hard for in my career. And eventually, I relapsed when I was in Kansas City. And if I wasn't gambling, I was drinking. I, I had been drinking all along, but the gambling started. I was at a Renaissance fair one day and I was drinking and the casino, I never told them to stop sending me 
information. Like they send you emails or they send you mail and free play and like, come back, come back. Wow. The free plays had graduated from $25 up to, I think it was $500. Oh, wow. If I went to the casino, they were going to give me free $500. So the longer I stayed away, the more the money went up. And again, it's my fault because you have a choice when you quit gambling to tell them, don't mail me anything. Oh, you could have stopped the mailing. Yeah, but I didn't do that. Okay. I thought I was uh, stronger than that. And on this particular day with my buzz, I drove a half an hour home, picked up the free play and drove another half an hour to the casino. And of course I lost it all. Uh And that was in October. And then Thanksgiving, I didn't know a lot of people in Kansas City, but a couple of people had invited me over for Thanksgiving weeks out. And they're like, do you want to come over? And I was like, well, so-and-so asked me. And I was lying, Michelle. I was lying. They asked me, but I had no intention of going. So it was lies of omission. Not that I was going to somebody's house. Truthfully, somebody asked me, but my little gambling brain, she knew she was going to the casino. So in the course of the two years, I had saved up $3,000. It was like the most money I've ever had in my whole life. And I lost it all that Thanksgiving day. So the spiral just escalated over the course of the next year or two. And it was just, if I wasn't at the casino, I was at the bar drinking and vice versa. I started missing volleyball and golf and all the things I like to do. And I just knew it was time, but I had all the excuses. I'm not going to treatment. One of my friends is like, well, Kansas will pay for you. Oh no, I can't miss that much time for work. And then I go in for, you know how they do open enrollment with medical benefits and you sign up? Yeah. Well, I find out in this meeting that I have eight weeks of short-term disability. So I'll get paid 100% of my pay, whether I'm at work or not. So it was like, okay, all the obstacles were removed. So to me, it was very clear. I had no more excuses. So I went into rehab in March of 2017, spent Easter in rehab in very cold Minnesota. And that kicked it off. And the way I went in thinking about it was, This is going to be the one time in my life that I have 30 days to do nothing but take care of myself. Like that was my only job. Although I was trying to get a job while I was in there too, because it was time, but working for them. Yeah, it was, it was an interesting dynamic. So I felt like rehab was a cross between summer camp and jail. That's the best way I can describe it. You got told when to take a shower, when to eat, where you could stand. You couldn't go in the hallway if the drug and alcohol people were passing you. You know, like everything was very structured. And I don't like that. (laughs) So it was kind of like, I'm never coming back here. So the first time I quit for fear and that time I quit because I just didn't ever want to experience that again. That was like my version of taking away my freedom just was a, a very big pain point for me. And on the way home, somebody from the bar that I went to reached out to me. He has three years sober at the time. And he says, okay, well, now you have 30 days with no alcohol. How about that too? (laughs) I was like, no, one thing at a time. So it took about three years for that to fall away. But in order to get released, I had to go to outpatient treatment in New York. I got the, the job. I moved back to New York and I was going to outpatient treatment there and I use a lot of different methods to recover. And the last few years, especially with the podcast, it's been amazing. I I don't know if you feel this way, Michelle, but when guests come on, I feel like it's like 
better than college, right? We get firsthand practical experience about things that we may not have ever known about. Do you, do you feel that way? Oh, absolutely. And I feel like I learn from every single person that blesses me by coming on. Yeah. So back to your question about like, what was it like 20 years ago with treatment? what it was then and what it is now, there's such a smorgasbord and people are doing some really cool things, whether it's spiritual or mental or music therapy or like the list goes on and on. So I kind of play in every sandbox to feel it out so that I can serve my people. So I try a lot of the different things and read the different books and the techniques. So this is probably off the wall question, but did you ever think of starting your own treatment facility? I I know we're going to get into your looking at the adult playground areas, but I mean, an actual treatment facility. Did you ever think of that? So this is my belief. Now, mind you, 10 years ago, I would have told you I was a complete atheist, no spirituality, no nothing. And this is why it's kind of fun to be on a show that speaks to this exact concept. I don't believe I was born to do the treatment center stuff. I really, really believe that I'm supposed to be a big mouth out there shouting from the rooftops and changing the landscape. Like, I really do believe that that's it, that it's bigger. It's not my expertise, but I I think I'm supposed to be challenged and fight the fight to change the way we do recovery socially. I think that's awesome. And I think it's also wonderful to know what your purpose is, because a lot of us spend most of our lives trying to figure that out. We really do. And so what a blessing. Yeah, I didn't even know it was a goal. Right. But it's so crystal clear and I can't shake it. Like the thought of ever going back to a regular job. I mean, I would do it if I had to, to do the money, you know, but I'm like, what's the point of that then? Like everything feels so small now. Not that having a regular job is small. That's not what I mean. But for me, I'd feel like a caged animal. It'd be my freedom to keep it again. Exactly. I know exactly what you meant because I would love to be out of the cage, so to speak. But yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. So a lot of us deal with that like inner critic or that nagging little voice. Did you learn how to deal with that in recovery or is that something that still pops up once in a while and you quilt it down or? It's I think it's always going to be there, but I've definitely come a long way in the process through recovery for sure, because I've had you know, therapy and counselors and cheerleaders and peers and all these things. Just recently, like last week, recently, I applied for Shark Tank. Oh, wow. And I also, I had bought, well, I actually like went to a tryout, but I also bought an email spot to try to find investors for my business. And my pitch deck wasn't ready. And I was, I worked on it and the, and the Shark Tank tryout and the email were going out on the same day. And as I'm writing it, I could feel those voices that you're talking about. And I'm like, no, I got the answers. And then the old programs in the cage, Bobby's like, oh, well, you got to write it this way. So you get their attention and that they like you. And I ended up throwing all that out the window, but it was like a conscious this is your dream and this is the way you see it. And this is the way the vision is. And these are your values. And don't give on that. If you don't get an investor because you are who you are and authentic to the thing, then it's not the right investor. Like I I had to really accept that, but it's scary. And even now, like this week, I didn't get the call from Shark Tank. 
So I didn't get an investor from that email. So it's real easy to dip down. And then it's like, okay, well, no, if you're going to be the chosen one, then you got to pick yourself up. And then, you know, LinkedIn has a video of a guy going up a stairs and falling off and going on a trampoline, but then bouncing back up to the next step. And it was a great visual. Like you just have to get back up and recovery does teach us how to get back up. Yeah. I think that's awesome. So I know you believe a lot in personal development and you've been on your own personal development journey. Correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I've read and listened to, but I loved at one point I heard you say that I was paying to find Bobby that resonated with me because I'm a personal development junkie and I don't know exactly everything I'm looking for. I'm just always trying to learn and be better. I I don't even know, but I was like, wow, that's probably what I'm doing too, trying to find myself. Well, another thing with that is I always say, so in recovery, you're kind of, you have no choice. You have to develop personally, right? Right. You might have to do inner child healing or, or go deep on these things that normal people don't have those, con- I, I say normal loosely, but you don't have those conversations like in the workroom, break room or whatever. So recovery gives us an option to kind of go deep and figure out who we are, to, to clean up our dirty scars and to not hang on to them and live in guilt and shame and all the things that are really easy to do. And I'm like, well, where does everybody else get this? How do they get that information? How do they heal? Because people don't even know there's opportunity or that they're not living authentically because they haven't been given that morsel of development to know that really how we're existing most of the time is all the BS around us. It's everybody else's voices. When do people realize, like, I believe this because everybody else told me to believe this or to do this or to feel this way? When for me, 42, 49 years ago, I was who I was. So you're right. We have to pay almost to find out, to unpeel the layers if we can't figure it out ourselves. And I I wouldn't know how to figure it out myself for sure. I, I wouldn't either, to be honest. And I can relate so much with exactly what you're saying. And the trauma from childhood, I think for a lot of us, you know, in the circles I'm in, there's a lot of talk about healing your childhood trauma. And, you know, for years I was oblivious to that. I had no clue that, that things that happened in childhood were affecting me to this day. And the more I peel back that onion, the more I realized. So yeah, it's pretty amazing, really. I'm definitely seeing themes, no matter what the recovery strategy is either about that. Like my belief now is that I believe what I believe based on the content I've consumed, whatever that is, whether, you know, like what's true for me. And that is definitely the biggest theme. And the other thing that shows up, and I don't know if you've felt this experience as well, the definition of trauma doesn't mean that you were beaten or molested or whatever. Like trauma is just so different for everybody. It is, yeah. I was doing an exercise. So I Scientology is one of the things I'm exploring. It's a personal development. It's crazy how amazing it is, like the data. So I've been doing this. It's kind of like therapy. They call it auditing. But you go back and you are reliving and, you know, revisiting things. And we went a couple of weeks ago in this experience where we were down in Florida and my brother got picked to go to Disneyland and I didn't. And this sentence of 
and this is how I remember in my subconscious. I still don't understand all of that, but I just go with it. The breakthrough was that I was told you can't have everything you want in the conversation. You can't always get what you want. So put that in entrepreneur or podcast or dreamer or a human mode. You can't always get what you want. If I believe that for all this time, why wouldn't I sabotage myself? Or why wouldn't I not try? Or why would I give up? Because I can't get what I want anyway. Because I believe that because I was told that once 30 years ago. Right. That's trauma. Yeah. It took me forever to realize that a lot of the things that that little inner critic says, you know, is exactly what you just said. It's not even things that I've come up with. It's something that was said to me that I've just repeated to myself over and over. And it finally dawned on me. I'm like, this is not even my words. Why am I doing this? So yeah, it's huge. I think when you start having those breakthroughs, and I think that's what pulls you into more <laughs> self-development because you're like, wow, if I can come this far, how far can I go? I don't know if this has been your experience, but this was another learning. So I'm an advocate of personal development and self-development. And like you said, this paying to find ourselves, there also came a point where I had to stop investing in that because then I was trying to find me, but then I was getting all these new beliefs and these new agendas put on me because there's some really good expert salespeople out there that get us thinking they have to be. So I just kind of have to throw that out there because it could be dangerous. And I had to put the brakes and the blinders on at a certain point and be like, I'm going to choose what I choose, not what you say I should do. Oh, I agree with that a thousand percent. And I think you can get sucked right down that rabbit hole. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You start recognizing the sales techniques and there's always an urgency. You got to do it now. You got to, and I resist that so much. I'm like, well, if I can't even think about it, then it must not be the thing for me because I, I don't like that. I know they do it to pressure you. So you buy, 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 but I've developed a resistance to that and I'm grateful for that resistance, I guess. But there are a lot of free master classes and self-help things too that people can take advantage of. But you, like you said, you got to be careful because there's always a dangling carrot with a price tag at the end of the free stuff. But if you can turn it off and go on to something else. Well, the other thing is too, I think that I've probably been guilty of this myself, maybe more so in COVID, but seeing people around me too get addicted to that. You're always consuming, but then you're not like processing and accepting and changing your behavior, like taking what you learn. Like that's an addiction too, to show up for everybody's free challenge and everybody's everything. And you don't get anything done that way. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, it is true. I don't show up for all of them, but the ones that I think are going to hit home, I will say, oh, maybe it's worth a couple hours or I'm more in the health arena right now. I'm kind of watching those things instead of this, the other kinds of personal development, I guess. But yeah, and I agree. There are so many things. And that's why I think the gambling addiction relates to, to everyone, because I also heard you say on another podcast, one of your podcasts, the 321 No Kidding podcast, I believe it was, that we all, like 90% of us, maybe more, have an addiction. And what is that addiction? And for me, I think it's food <laughs> and I struggle with food and it's not that I eat tons of it or anything, but I will make wrong choices. And I know I should be doing this, but I do that. And so sometimes I do wonder, is this some kind of comfort? And I think that's what I find in food is just comfort. 
And so I, I do think we all struggle, or most of us, you're very blessed if you don't put it that way, with some kind of addiction, whether it's self-help, food, alcohol, something. Social media, our thoughts, negative people. There's a lot of people addicted to social media and their iPhones or <laughs> droids or whatever. I don't know the textbook definition of addiction, but basically we can almost redefine it by anything that's consuming us so that we're escaping from ourselves or that that voyage to find our true selves. I feel like this is another caveat. Like you can overcome one addiction, but you have to be very careful not to replace it with a new one, right? Because it's almost like a, a personality. Tra- I, don't, I don't know how to explain it. You could, you could probably explain it better than I could. But So the, the language in the field is called co-occurring disorder. So a lot of times in different communities that I've been in, you're going to see the same faces in a GA meeting as you're going to see in an AA meeting. It happens more than you think. Oh, you mean they have both addictions at the same time going through both? Okay. Yeah. Or they went from one. Okay. So like, let's say they've been in AA for 25 years. All of a sudden they're in GA X amount of years later, because even though they've done the work, they've now filled the void with something else. So that happens quite often. And it's natural. Like I still struggle. I love my sugar. Like I could eat dessert 24 seven. I could, that could be my food. And my cigarette relationship is like a yo-yo. And then I say to myself, well, Bobby, if you know better and you're practicing what you preach, how are the cigarettes and the food still an issue? And then it's, then I have this whole other concept of, well, you gave up gambling and drinking. Those are like pretty good ones. And you are paying attention. And, you know, I have to give myself some grace because then if I beat myself up, then I'm triggering the negative voices again. And then it gives me excuse to eat. And like, they're going to fall away. I didn't intend to quit drinking, Michelle. Like totally did not mean to quit drinking. I was going on a trip. It was a sober trip. I knew that part of it, but it was a trip to Asia and it was going to be fantastic. And it was from a podcaster. A podcaster had put it together. And Oh, wow. I was like, I got to go on this trip. And his ask was that you you are sober 30 days before. So I go on the trip and I have a ball. And I'm like, okay. So I come back and the very first night that I'm like, I'm going to be able, I'm going to go out and see what it's like to be at a bar with live music and the same people that I happen to have my last drink with. Let me see if I can do this and what this looks like. And that was the night that before the, the fun even started, I get a text that my estranged biological father died. Oh no. And I'm the oldest child. So it's like my responsibility to arrange things and get things going. And with that came like so many emotions. And I'm like, my first thing was, well, I'll just gotta have a Long Island iced tea. But I knew he died of a booze, like indirectly or not, or whatever. Like we didn't find out officially that it was cirrhosis until after the autopsy, but it was totally booze. And not too long before that, when I was still drinking, I had sent a really nasty text. Like, I think it's like one of the worst things I've ever done. I've never said those kinds of things, even if they were true. I just don't ever put it out there, Yeah, you know, like intentionally hurt. And I had done that with the buzz on. So I knew that I couldn't drink and process the emotions. Like I didn't want to be hurtful. I didn't, there was too much volatility and then going through a breakup. And then like all these things happened. Like we came back from Asia. 
on February 1st of 2020. So then we launched right into COVID. And then it was like, and then, and then, and then, and all these really horrible things kept happening. COVID was a big, a big shift for everybody, but all these deaths, like the first six months of 2020, somebody died consecutively every month. Like the week that my, my father died, his mom died really crazy stuff. And I was too afraid to drink to cope. Like that was one rule I had made in 2019 for myself. I could still drink. I don't have to quit drinking, but I can't use drinking to cope. Or if I was going to do it, I had to be very mindful about it. And I did do it twice in 2019. I I was like, nope, I'm intentionally drinking because I want to like erase this day. So it became out of fear, but then I didn't miss it. And then as things progressed and you asked about co-occurring, then I was like, okay, if I want a place where there's no gambling, and no kids. Do I have alcohol there or not? Knowing what I know about co-occurring and how good my life has become since I quit drinking, there was like no reason to turn back. And right now I won't tell you I quit drinking forever. I say I I will quit drinking until I have a good reason. So when I make my first million right now, the deal is I'm going to have a glass of champagne and who knows by that time it might be grape juice but it isn't how I have to survive life anymore. So that's kind of how it worked for me. And I think the cigarettes and my weight will fall off the same way. Now the alcohol, it sounds like you don't feel like you were addicted to the alcohol. You just, it was just a good decision to get, because I'm curious, because I know people that, you know, they might be sober 20 years and they decide to test themselves and just have a little drink. I know I can put it down. And next thing you know, they're full blown again. Or if you are addicted, I'm just curious why you would test yourself because you've overcome it. Why would you ever put yourself in that position again? That's such a good question. So there's a couple schools of thought. So one is, so I don't feel like I'm missing something. I don't really feel that way. But if I thought about it as, okay, I'm not identifying as an alcoholic and I have the freedom to pick up a drink whenever I want, then it takes the pressure off of trying to be abstinent or sober or whatever. That that's not a factor so much anymore. The putting at risk. So again, this is kind of how the data has changed me. I used to think that I, uh, well, and I still believe you can be sober X amount of years, go back, and then you're going to pick up exactly where you left off. Right. Unless you do the work and you do the healing and you do it where it's not, you're not using it to escape which is such a very minute, I don't even know that I believe it enough to test it yet, but that's where I'm leaning is that if you've healed the wounds, right? Like we literally have physical scars. They're not going to bleed if we touch them anymore. I don't know if it's going to work that way or not. If I pick up a drink, if I could do it just for one or not. But there's some kind of genetic component to alcoholism, right? I mean, I have some in my family too, so I don't drink. I don't ever want to go down that path. I've watched it I don't want it. So I don't even drink, but I'm just curious because in my head, I'm relating it to sugar. You mentioned the sugar addiction. If I ever overcome (laughs) the sugar addiction, I don't ever want to test it again because I know I would be right back in an instant. Comparing alcohol to sugar is, I know it's out there, but I'm just saying that it, it is a very strong addiction and it is one that's very physical. I mean, your brain triggers like dopamine hits with the sugar and I'm learning all kinds of stuff about sugar. So 
I'm just curious what your thoughts on that are. I mean, do you feel there is a physical genetic component that even though you've healed the wounds, you're going to trigger something else that's beyond your control? I think that I could spend the rest of my life investigating that. And not know. <laughs> and well, and not really know, because I thought it was nature versus nurture. And I've been in classes with psychologists and brain experts, and I've seen presentations and I understand enough about the brain chemistry to believe in some of that hereditary stuff. And there's always that in the back of my mind tied in with the new stuff. If we add in what I'm learning from the Scientology lens, and I'm not trying to like promote it or anything. It's just something that like their rehabs have a 78% success rate compared to a normal one that has 6%. I owe it to the world to investigate if this is a thing. But when their thing, this retraining of the brain gets rid of the reactive brain, which is the brain that has holds all that garbage that we were talking about, all those beliefs, all those feelings. But then there's Dr. Bradley Nelson. He wrote The Emotion Code. Have you Are you familiar with that book? I don't think so. Well, his premise is that if emotions don't get fully processed, they get trapped. And his whole book is he was he's a chiropractor and he can help you break through those emotions. So if all of that's released, does the hereditariness matter or not? Because the alcohol isn't feeding the dopamine to help numb the emotion that's trapped. And so I guess what I'm saying, that's why I say kind of loosely, have I seen two very important people to me go past double digit sober years and go back and end up exactly where they were when they, before they quit? Yeah. And it's gruesome and that fear may stay with me and I may never pick up a drink ever again. Or I may, because of my, like, because I believe so much in my mission, I may never do it because I don't want to be a hypocrite. Like that drives me too. Like, I don't want to open no gambling, no alcohol. And then I can have alcohol outside of that because I think that's confusing and that doesn't send the right message either. So it's ethical too. I hadn't thought of that, but that's true. I mean, if people knew it, they would. But I would know. Probably at least. uh, Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. But if they knew it, they'd be like, what's she up to? (laughs) Yeah. Very true. Yeah. I got certified in hypnotherapy and you go back to the childhood. Usually it's childhood events. I mean, the client takes themselves back to the events that they feel triggered it, but it's the same. Yeah. Uh, Usually it's in childhood and you're trying to heal what that little kid, the beliefs that little child formed as a child without the processing of an adult. And then they've just believed it forever because that was the belief they had. They never question it. They never say, wait a minute, this six-year-old thought this what do I think as an adult looking at it now? And it's been eye-opening for sure. That's exactly the premise I'm talking about. That's exactly it. Yeah. So I can see both sides, but yeah, I would be afraid myself, but that's me. <laughs> you have the fearless spirit. I don't, I wasn't blessed with it. <laughs> well, I guess one of the biggest things I learned is every time I have like an aha or a it's upon reflection, right? Like of something that I learned or something that I did or whatever. And I know that these just come so often now that I'm not afraid to take a stand on one way or another, like if I would or I could or whatever, but I've changed so much. I didn't believe there was a God 10 years ago. And now I'm like, 
putting the little prayer hands on all my emails, you know, or just, you know, believing in a different sense of the word. So it's this gift that's allowing me grace and compassion for everything, whether it's people, myself, information, bad information. So politics, I'm going to compare it to my, my views on politics. I always believed that politics would be a full-time job for me to have enough information to make the right educated decision on who's the right person. It would it, I could literally do that as 80 hours a week and never have all the right information, right? right. Because I'm only going to get what I get. And that's kind of how I've become about recovery. So my mission is raising awareness that it's possible and then letting people know that there's just so many options out there and you get to make the choices. And do I believe that it's all caused from trauma or hereditary? Whatever the cause is, it's more important, I think, for me to give hope that there's ways. Oh yeah, It's not a one size fits all. And that's kind of what my message evolved into. It wasn't this way. It hasn't always been this way. It's been I went to 12 step. I went to rehab. You should do things the way I did it. And it's not that way anymore. Yeah. I love that because what worked for you might not work for the next person, but if they know that there's all these different options, like you said, they can choose what they think is going to work for them. What fits their personality, their needs. So yeah, that's great. So Bobby, let me ask you, how do you reward yourself now? Well, one of the biggest things I do, so it's my birthday next week. Oh, wow. Mine's coming up too. What day? Oh, I'm Sunday, the 23rd. I'm the 24th. Oh, yeah. Well, happy birthday. Happy birthday. The little Leo girls here. That's right. So in combination of that, and then the amount of money I've saved from not gambling and not drinking, one of my biggest treats is going to Blue October concerts. They're a sober band where the lead singer talks vocally about his sobriety. And it's also a recovery experience for me. I'm learning to really appreciate music in a different way through them. So I go to their concerts, maybe a lot. I think I have tickets to like eight or 10 shows just this year. But this next trip is kind of a reward slash, it's actually work. Like I'm going to go tour Meow Wolf, which is an entertainment facility in the Midwest where artists have put together this like collaborative art thing. Not the same as what I'm trying to do with 321, but to go see what that experience is like. I'm going to an entrepreneurial event called Transcendence, which is going to be kind of like a more spiritual entrepreneurial event, not like sales and marketing, but like how to be the best version of yourself as an entrepreneur. Then I have a week break between that and a sober retreat. So I'm going to go to the Grand Canyon and just chill and drive wherever I want to drive. And then I have to boogie back from Montana all the way back to New York, Michelle. And I get to go hang out with that band Blue October with a write your own song music retreat. So I'm going to write my own music for the podcast and for the business. So that's how I reward myself by giving myself the gifts of life and experience and living my freaking life. That's awesome. Like why else quit? Like if you're going to quit drinking and doing stuff, all those people and just go on with the normal, those people who are like, well, then what fun are you? Like they legitimately can ask that question because you're not showing up fun. You're, you know, and you're not living your life. I, I think that's wonderful. I would be cool to write your own music. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I was going to ask if you've ever dabbled in that nope. or this is a whole new. Oh, wow. 
if it wasn't for them and they said that people like i think real musicians are going too because they're like you could bring your own instruments and this camp is designed to support writing and stuff but i figure i'll do my best and i already know like what i want it to sound like and if right now they're generous enough to let me use their music for my show i went in and i asked them and they said it was okay so yeah, I want to be like, thank you for four years of not charging me a royalty. Can you help me write my own song now? You can help co-produce it. <laughs> That's wonderful, I think. So as we go on, I, I want people to hear, like, I know you have this vision of making these recovery playgrounds. So could you explain what your vision is, like vividly for us? What is it? Oh, vividly. Watch out. You don't have a 10-hour show slot here. But okay, so when I was married to my wonderful ex-husband, he was like a goofy big kid. So I really think that this idea started 10, 15 years ago. I wanted to throw him a 50th birthday party with all kinds of kid activities, like the slip and slide and, you know, like all that fun stuff, but not have any kids. Now, back then I was still drinking. So it would have been a big adult party with kid flavored things to be goofy. So that was like the very first nugget. Then I go to rehab and I find out about these other states not offering treatment and basically treatment for gamblers isn't available to everybody. So then that ticked me off. And I'm like, well, how am I going to fix that? Well, back to politics. I'm never going to learn the politics. So I need to figure out a different way. Well, I bet you if Tony Robbins wanted to change the law, he could do it. Okay. So I just need to get famous. So <laughs> this is like, these are the little kernels, right? Right. Then I discovered the podcast, The Recovery Elevator, which is the sober podcast. Um, the fellow who hosted that retreat in Asia and where I'm going in Montana, he's hosting this one as well. This alcohol-free stuff starts bubbling up. Now, while we were on our way back from Asia, I was the lady with no children sitting next to the screaming child two rows back for 10 freaking consecutive hours. I'm also, and I don't know if this is like part of my own mental illness or anxiety or whatever. But like, if I'm walking in a mall, you know how kids have no sense of their space, right? Like they kind of just wander and they cut in front of you. And it, it makes me feel very, like I could feel my body doing it, just thinking about it. Like they don't know their space. Adults sometimes don't either. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But that feeling of me not having control of my own personal space. So I have not been able to find a place free of kids gambling and alcohol all at the same time. So here's what I mean. Parents, and I'm not against kids per se, but I've watched, I'll go to a museum or a bouncy house or a amusement park, any of these places, kids have the lay of the land, right? right. And you could see adults are having fun, but it's generally through the eyes of their kids. So if their kids are having a good experience, they're having a good experience. Where do we get to go to do that? Very true. If I go roller skating, I shouldn't have to trip over the kid who's got his little thing trying to learn when I want to, you know, just do my zoomies with like, now that I'm getting older, I'm a little scareder and I don't want to follow. I was going to say, you're going to see some adults with those little things too. <laughs> Probably, but there's not a place to go. Right. Okay. Well, I can go. There's no casino, no kids allowed in a casino. But I can drink and I can gamble. You'd think I could go to a bar, 
but there's screaming kids there always at the table next to me at dinner. Like even in the bar area, I'll specifically go in the bar area where there's alcohol and still end up with kids and booze and Kino machines and all the things. There's literally no space to go to get our dopamine hit that you were talking about through play and connection and just being silly or being an alcoholic. Been in recovery 20 years. What do you like to do for fun? Well, I like to be on a pool league or a dartboard league. Where is he going to go? To the bar with the booze. And we're going to wonder why he's drinking again. Right. So the model's for everybody to prevent those who don't have addictions, teach them the healthy ways, teach them to make connections, teach them to play and laugh. Like those big, clear bubble suits, like you can have bubble wars. Yeah. I always wanted to. Like, I want to have those. I want to have karaoke and trivia that's sober. Well, a concert I went to in North Carolina last year, I had a beer dumped on my head. In Nashville, same thing. I'm getting drinks poured on me. and I'm reeking like I'm drinking and I didn't drink. Where do we go to not have all that? It literally doesn't exist. So have you ever thought of doing it in a retreat format of some sort? Like if you found a place that you could rent for a short period, a couple times a year? I mean, because if it was like Disneyland where you had huge ride, like roller coasters or something without the kids and the gambling and the booze, that's one thing. But if you're talking like the bubble wars and you're talking about stuff that you could set up and tear down. I may have to do something like that for the proof of concept for investors, even though there are a few sober bars. And I actually start training with one of the sober bars that is established and that has pop ups. So doing some of those activities, part of what I want, I want attention on this. Go back to the being famous part, right? So I want some really nifty architecture that's going to get us on the news and get the politicians eyes and get the people who can help make a difference and get treatment available to everybody. So like it's a ground up building in my mind. You go in the door, you go down a slide, you go into a ball pit, the ball pit submerges a level down so it gets clean so there's no, you know, the balls get sanitized. Right. It has a dog park. It has volleyball nets. It has all these very unique to all the things that are in my head. And the other part of it is a complimentary nonprofit side. So I want transitional housing. All right. So let's talk about someone who is coming out of rehab or someone who is, I told you, once you get me going, I get so excited about this. No, you're fine. Yeah. I'm hearing about it. So someone coming out of prison, someone coming out of rehab, someone coming off the streets. If they're coming out of rehab or, or prison, they're going back to the environment they came from generally, right? Right. They, If there's someone who's homeless, how do they get a job if they don't have a home and the clothes and the resources to get the job to pay for the home? Like there's all these cycles that I want to just freaking break. So I want transitional housing where they have the clothes, the food, the shelter, and they can, they'll get training and they'll earn their spot to work at the recovery playgrounds. Oh, wow. So you volunteer at the recovery playground for 30 days, say, as part, you know, you have to be clean. You have to follow the rules. I'm I'm very rules and ethics and structure, but then you're there and you're already trained and you already feel like part of the community, the love, the whatever. And now you don't have the worries of the bills, the food, the clothes. And it all just becomes a community. 
And ideally, like in a perfect case model, we take someone from street through this process to now they're opening franchises of three to one in all the places. Then the long-term vision is the retreat center that you're talking about, but I wanted a year-round destination that instead of having just like, I want a yoga room and a Zumba room and the pool tables and all of that. So I picture the big retreat center having different buildings for each of those activities plus camping lodges. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's neat. So that's the whole vision-ish. And then there's the airline after that, but that's the 10-year plan. The airline, what do you mean? So I want a no-kidden airline too that- Oh, okay. It'll be a plane- that has three compartments, no kids, no alcohol, and no drinking. But the three compartments are, the first compartment is the business people that have access to, you know, like elbow room and computer and all that. The middle's the networking section for connection. And then the end is for the animals. And you don't have to put your big dogs under the, the plane anymore. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. So I just want to solve some problems for mankind, Michelle. That's it. But now you're going to hear the dog barking instead of the kid screaming. <laughs> well, it's a separate compartment. That's why the networking is in the middle. Oh, okay. So they're all together. Yeah. The networking will be ambient. Okay. And the barking will be covered by it. That's why they're that strategy. Well, that's good. I like that. Because I've often thought of traveling with my dog, but I can't stand the thought of stowing him in the cargo. I can't do it. Bad things happen down there, I've heard. So yeah. 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 So that's a great vision. How do you plan on achieving it? Are you still much in the process? Well, that's where we're at right now. Until I did this pitch deck and really did, I did a bunch of worksheets on how to make the the model work. And thankfully, so many people are setting the stage. Like I said, this alcohol-free bar training I don't have to learn that part. I'm going to learn it from him, but then I'll, I can license it from him. Oh, that's great. So the pieces are coming together and I visited enough entertainment facilities and I know that the data is out there. But once I did these worksheets, you're not even going to believe what I'm about to tell you, but I did the worksheets just on the business model and having the leagues, having the food, having, you know, the entertainment, and it would be a membership model so that you can come as often as you want instead of the per occurrence at 821 people a day, it comes out to $161 million a year in sales. Wow. If it was a thousand people a day, it would be 250 million. You could totally do the charitable side. Yeah. That would be awesome. So, and I, and that's off of Top Golf's numbers and Disney's numbers. And that, you know, like I did all the research. So now I'm at the point where I just have this confidence that I know it's a great model. I know that it's not a gamble for an investor. It's literally not a gamble. It's going to work. And I'm also through this time, I've got connected with so many communities like the Recovery Elevator, like this fellow who I'm taking the class from, other podcasters in the gambling space. And I'm not shy. This is where my big mouth will come in. You know, the hour before you and I met, I was emailing people that said they were venture capitalists that had anything to do with addiction in their thing. I was sending them LinkedIn messages. Here's my pitch deck. And the universe is going to take care of me because it's too good of a vision for it to not happen. It's just too good. Right. And when you start seeing pieces come together, I don't think that's a coincidence. I think it's happening for a reason and, and for an end result. 
Yeah. It's a little scary for the people around me who are like, what are you doing? You don't get a paycheck. You haven't barely gotten a paycheck for the last four years. Well, I don't know what to tell you. It's just got to happen. I think it's awesome. I heard on one of your podcasts that you get to meet celebrities. I'm not sure who or where or when, but have you approached them with the images or? Well, there's the arena that I'm meeting people in, like it's generally through like going to grants events, depending on who's there. Like I'm connected with a few of the folks from being an undercover billionaire and like just being immersed in communities. But it's not just having the celebrity. It's people got to be passionate about the addiction. and. Oh, yeah, I know. But I, I thought maybe you're meeting some that have overcome, like you say, alcoholism themselves, because we know in the celebrity realm and in, in the musician realm, that's quite yeah frequent, I think. Yeah. Not yet, but I will. Yeah, I'm sure you will. I will. I actually, you know who I started following? I had read years ago that he was sober. Mark Cuban from Shark Tank. Yeah. His brother is 16 years sober. Oh, wow. So I, I will probably reach out to him at some point because he's a addiction advocate and stuff and see if I could have him on the show. But basically at this point, I'm robbing whoever has the potential to invest that believes in this by not giving them the opportunity to get in because this is going to be billion dollar industry from the money perspective. And the money is going to just help the world like by getting people off the street and doing all this like it's I don't know it's just exciting because it could help so many people it is yeah yeah and with the numbers you're talking like I said you can totally you'd be totally able to support the charitable side which the transitional housing and yeah so that's pretty awesome you've cured your own issues well and my friends too right like all these people that I've met as on the podcast all these authors I'm going to have a bookstore. I'm going to promote the products of and services of all the recovery pieces too. So it will kind of be like my own treatment place, but not specific, like happening all there, but getting people connected to the resources. That's wonderful. So speaking of books, I know that you're a published author too, a best-selling author. So would you want to tell us about your book? Well, during COVID, and thank you for asking that, in the personal development space, <laughs> nine of us wrote a book together called Belonging. And we had met in in a community. And it's really, it was just, it was really interesting how we met because I didn't know who Esther Hicks is. Do you know who Esther Hicks is? I've heard the name, but I, I can't place it. Or Esther. Yeah. It's like the manifestation people. I, I don't actually even understand it all yet, but I was, I wanted to learn more about it. So I end up with all these woo-woo girls that are all about feelings and, and we're all different. Everything from, you know, 40 to I think close to 70 or 75. And we end up right, each writing a chapter about belonging. And we're led by this wonderful lady that lives in California, but we have a lady from France, from Ireland, and we each wrote a chapter on our journey of belonging. So mine is about my addiction story and how I found belonging through that. And the one we're working on now is called Believing. Oh, wow. So yeah, we, from the beginning, it was like, we're going to be the next chicken soup for the soul. So that's kind of what they're striving for. Yeah. I, I've, I've got some friends that have been part of, you know, each write a chapter of a book. I think it's pretty awesome to be able to, to do that first of all, and participate in something like that. 
Yeah, there's some very unique stories and diversity in the group. And these ladies' stories are, you know, powerful. One of our ladies was like abandoned by her parents and adopted and, you know, just crazy stuff. So again, it's the smorgasbord, right? Like how I feel like I belong is going to be different than how Michelle feels like she belongs. Right. So do you grow like a camaraderie with these women? I mean, do you get to know them on some level? Yeah. So I visited Taz in Colorado twice. Oh, wow. Two of the girls live in the city and I haven't been there yet. Somebody else I met in person. I can't remember who exactly. I was this close to me in Trez in France when I was over in the UK, but we couldn't figure out how to get me like where I was and where she was. So someday we'll all meet. Our vision is to have retreats together, like a once a year, big, fancy kind of retreat for our clients. That's awesome. With no gambling, no kids. <laughs> no, I'm, not, I'm kidding. <laughs> now I'll have wine. Like that's a perfect example too. Like if we were in France and it was about tasting the different wines because it's an experience, like to me, that's right. That's different. Yeah. Yeah. So it's so subjective. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I can see that. So I know you you manage and I don't know how because one's enough for me, but at least right now. But how do you manage two podcasts and tell us? I know we you have the three, two, one, no kidding. And then the recovery entrepreneur. The Recovering Entrepreneur Show. So 321, when I first started, I was super serious and like took the notes ahead of time and had structured interviews and was like very serious and did all the editing myself. And then I eventually learned to outsource that and get some help with that. So I don't edit anymore. And during COVID, I was recording two shows a day and I wasn't editing. So I, I learned to just be okay with them not being edited. So that's one of the tricks to how I pull off too. So you mean you don't edit the shows? No. Or you pay to have someone edit? Now I have the girls do it, but they're doing it more just to make social media clips and stuff. I don't get into oh, Okay. The culture has changed so much the last few years with book lives and all these things. And it's like, well, why can't we screw up on a podcast? I'm going to screw up. I'm not a perfect speaker. So I've gotten past that and I've gotten my routine kind of down. So that's kind of what I've done. And then the Recovering Entrepreneur Show, the idea when it started was to be, it's so funny that they evolved. 321 was just to raise awareness around gambling and it turned into all this recovery stuff and, and all kinds of addiction. And then the Recovering Entrepreneur Show, I was going to document my journey. Well, honestly, in reflection, I had pissy pants on. I'd gotten burned. I was having a horrible time. And it was actually very victim in the beginning. Thank God that's not who I am anymore. And it evolved into a platform for my friends that were entrepreneurs and starting out and became a platform to showcase them. And now I still do that. But it's also a good way. I go to a group. I actually once a quarter and people pitch to be on my shows. And I get authors and just different people looking to share their stuff. So that's how I get a lot of my guests with the Recovering Entrepreneur Show now is people want to be on there and want the exposure. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah I know it's hard to keep. I, I'm blessed. That I've, I've got some people inquiring for me, but there's times where you get a little lull and you start to worry. You're like, oh, am I going to have <laughs> enough guests? Because I like to keep a regular cadence. Yes. Well, I had had a day job that was really tying me up at the beginning of the year. So I came back 
and everybody that I owed from Q1 and I think the fourth quarter of last year, I came back, I was recording like 15 shows a week Wow! to get caught up and ahead. And now that I'm leaving again, I think we're actually done with both shows like through October and then tomorrow night, I'll get a whole bunch more guests. Wow! But I like batching like one day a week, batch it up. I'll do generally three is my max because depending on what you're doing, but yeah, I was in the zone and, and got through quite a few. And luckily my hands helped me with the girls helped me with all the communication and, and the, the follow up. Yeah. I say I, I do all that myself right now. Plus I work full time. Plus I was doing the whole hypnosis and getting certified with that. So it's, yeah, I was like, there's no way. <laughs> so what is your vision? Like what's your end game? Like with this show, like what is your, why did you start it? The more I got into it, the more I was like, I enjoy being a platform to let other people tell their stories. I haven't really told mine. And we've had a lot of health problems within the family. I mean, all kinds of crazy stuff. So I, like I said, at first I thought it was about that. It's morphed into letting other people share their stories. So I don't know what the end goal is for it, really, to be honest. I, I just love trying to help people. And I've had different people say, well, you should niche down. You should do this. But then you limit yourself so much. And maybe one particular show is not for everyone but it's going to touch someone and maybe the next show touches someone else because of the topic. And like I said, every single guest I have on, whether I've been down a similar path or far from it, I still learn from them and I'm still in awe of what they've overcome and what they've done. And I feel like it's still an inspiration to all of us. Right. So that's just kind of how I look at it, I guess. I'm very proud of you, Michelle. Thank you. I don't know about you, but it took me three months before I'd actually record my first episode. I was petrified. I was petrified. So just in addition to working a full-time job and doing it and just showing up for yourself that way and for your audience, you know, kudos to you. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So what lights you up right now? Is it just the recovery playgrounds or is, the, is it the retreats or just all these? Well, right now I'm kind of, I'm having... So, you know, we're just talking about having control of our own like actions and I'm really trying to, I'm in this zone of get everything done because I really want to just pay attention to the retreats. I get so much learning and value and I drive, I'm driving from Connecticut to Scottsdale, Arizona, to the Grand Canyon and Montana. Wow. So what happens in between is everything from the thinking and the processing to more audiobooks, podcasts you know, and consuming, I grow like crazy on these trips. I bet. Yeah. I haven't done a retreat yet, but I would love to. I think they sound awesome. Yeah. Well, this one, like he's the very first one. I'm. He's a very, 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 very expensive coach that I could, I don't have the ability to hire one-on-one yet, but I met him about three years ago and um, he's sober. So again, another one that like is in alignment with me, but for three days, it was like a thousand dollars. And I know he's going to deliver the same way he delivers with his one-on-one clients. I did his fearless challenge, 30 day fearless challenge where it was free and you had to show up every day. You got an email with a prompt to post on social media and you had to post on social media. And that's what I think gave me the courage to send out the pitch and to go try out for Shark Tank. Wow. So he's like that good of a coach. So to go spend three days and he's telling us 
I don't care if like you fall in love, but save it for after the thing, dress to impress, bring comfy clothes for the evening activities, like yoga clothes. Like he's very clear on his boundaries and expectations. And that's another reason I go to retreats too, is to learn. You know how you said some of these folks, you could see their sales techniques. Mm-hmm. So I watch that now and pull what I feel good about. I don't do all the shady shit. And the same thing with the retreats. I go and I take all the bests from everybody else's experiences. And that way, when I'm hosting retreats, I can have a little bit more. Oh, So I guess everything's lighting me up right now. Yeah, I would think exactly what you said, that it's a learning opportunity of how you even run a retreat, right? So if you've never done it before, you're getting firsthand front row seat on how to do it. So yeah. And that's just a sidebar to what you're going to the retreat for. Exactly. That's great. Yeah. I went, I traveled all the way to Dubai for a retreat. Wow. And in that culture, not Dubai's culture, in the, in the 10X culture, it's commit first, figure the rest out later. Like that's a Grant Cardonism and you just do it. Well, she did it and she had some nice things planned for us, but she didn't have the all the execution figured out and it ruined the experience. I mean, oh, wow. it was a good experience. Don't get me wrong. And we did some really amazing things, but me being the planner and someone who's observing that stuff, I observed the weaknesses and they were very loud to me. And I don't ever want someone to have that experience. So before we wrap up today, is there anything we haven't discussed that you would want to make sure that our listeners get to hear? Michelle, first of all, you're like an awesome interviewer and I've had such a good time. Like this has been such a good conversation. Oh, thank you. I really just hope that your listeners are kind to themselves and understand like we all got stuff. We're all capable of getting through stuff. Just be grace and compassion, grace and compassion for everything. One of my favorite things, and I think I learned it from conversations from God This book is amazing, by the way. If you haven't read it, read it. Conversations with God is just epic. It's a trilogy. But I think this is where I got it from. But basically, like, if you're thinking about something, about someone, or even yourself, ask how that thought serves you. So if I want to be critical on someone and I look at them, how does that help me by being critical of them? Right. And just that one question, I think, would be the one thing I would say to everybody because it's so powerful and it could be applied to everything. And it, it's just helping for clarity and consciousness, in my opinion. Oh, I agree totally. That's a great way to end. I love your mission. And I love that above all else, that you want to give people hope because I think hope is priceless. It, it is so priceless. So no matter what you're going through, what your story is, what your issue is. If you don't have hope, you don't have anything. So thank you for doing what you're doing. Yes, it's been my pleasure, Michelle. Okay, well, thank you. Goodbye. Take care, Michelle. Thank you. Bye-bye. As we wrap up today's episode, I hope Bobby sharing her journey and her wisdom has helped you in some way. I love Bobby's mission and trying to redesign how we do gambling addiction recovery socially. Her idea of an adult playground to help recovering addicts find reconnection to people and to fun is a wonderful vision, and I can tell Bobby will be turning it into reality very soon. Another thing Bobby talked about was how there are only six inpatient treatment centers for gambling addiction. That needs to change. And she also mentioned that many of them make the gambling addicts pay for help when they already have no money. 
I thought one of the coolest things Bobby mentioned is how if we're thinking negatively about ourselves or someone else, we should stop and consciously ask ourselves, how is that thought serving us? And she's right. That's a very powerful question. What stood out to you? I'd love to hear from you. As always, I hope this episode helps at least one person. And with that, I hope you have a blessed week, my friend. Thank you for listening to The Beauty in the Mess. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on your favorite pod player. If you have any questions or comments, any topic ideas you would like to hear about, or you think you would be a great guest on the show, you can reach me directly at thebeautyinthemess.com. Thanks for listening.